0: Hey, everybody, and welcome, everybody, online today. So glad you're here, especially want to say hello to the 11 and 12.30 p.m. services today at Mosaic. I'll be at our, I am at our South Campus for their 11 o'clock service today. Mosaic South is doing great. But I'm excited to continue our look at the book of Ephesians with you right now. Here we go, chapter two. We'll pick up where we left off last week. Verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God Through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. But fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and arises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives By his spirit. That's the reading of God's holy word. All his people today said, amen. Yeah. Hey, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a building boom in our backyard Uh, in downtown Austin. That is where there are now the news says more than 20 planned towers going up over the next few years. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, what's probably most striking about our city is that when you go past or drive past downtown, anybody driven past it recently? Yeah, one of the things that you'll notice is it feels like there are about as many cranes as there are buildings. As a matter of fact, you can't even take a snapshot of the skyline without a crane craning its way into your picture. I'm sorry, I know, yeah. Hey, here's one shot of that. Here's one shot of downtown. Yeah, and among these 20 new buildings going up, there is one in particular that already towers over the others. Sorry, listen, it's Father's Day. You knew you were going to get the bad dad jokes. All right. So we we all know that the Frost Bank building is 33 stories enormous. And the independent sort of the, you know, jigsaw, zigzag one, that's 58 stories. But the new Waterline building will be at least 74 stories more than twice as tall as the Frost Bank building when they're done with it and when it's finished it will be the tallest building in Texas because of course and it's one of will be one of the tallest buildings in the United States the waterline that's the name will be unmissable in any direction it will rise so far above the ground everyone can see it for miles that's what people in Austin are building But did you know that God has a new building going up in Austin too? It's definitely not this literal space that we're in, Mosaic North or South, although our facilities are wonderful. No, God's building is unlike, we're going to see today, anything that's ever been built before. And when it's done, it will also be unmissable visible from every direction no matter where anyone lives not in a city but around the world how can i say that well paul the apostle first century author of this letter to the church in the ancient city of ephesus that's modern day turkey this letter is all about the church and its relationship to the city paul says this about the kind of building god is building verse 22 and in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Ah, so Paul tells us God's building is built out of us. Okay, but there's only one problem with that. Sometimes God's bricks Don't want to bond. (laughs) Sometimes his stones don't want to stay set. Sometimes his windows don't want to work together. Sometimes his logs don't want to love and his rocks don't want to relate. Have I made my point clear? And that's not just a problem with the building God is building. It's the problem with the building God is building. So how is God going to build and hold his building together? Well, that's what this passage is all about. So let's ask three questions of this passage right now. First, first, if God is building something in the world and therefore also in Austin, what is God building in Austin? Well, it is a specific kind of structure, we're told. Verse 21, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become, here it is, a holy temple in the Lord. Well, well, hang on. Like, Didn't the Jews already have a temple? Yeah, they did. And didn't the Greeks already have a temple? Yeah, they had a bunch. There was one for Artemis right down the road. The Greeks, the Jews, they all built temples. Why did? After all, people build temples. Well, humans have traditionally, historically built temples for three main reasons. First, to draw near to their God. Second, they, we have built temples to overcome to deal with evil in the world somehow and finally people have built temples to create and build culture like to construct kind of a sacred canopy over a civilization but you'll notice here paul says it's not people who are building god's building it's god Who's building? God's building for those same three reasons, but with a twist. God's building his building in order to draw near to us anywhere, to overcome evil in the world everywhere, and to create a new culture beyond compare. And to do all of that, to overcome evil in the world, to draw near to us, to create a whole new culture, God's building not just a temple, but what Paul calls a holy temple, not made by people, but of people. That's, number one, what God is building. A holy temple, not made by people, but of people. Now let's ask a second question, one that's gonna take quite a lot longer to answer. Just warning you, okay, why? Why is this? Why is God doing this? Why is he building a new kind of holy temple? All right, here it is. We're told God is building something new in order to destroy something old. God's building something new in order to destroy something old. What is that? What is God destroying? Well, we're told here in a word, it's hate. Hate. Old, ancient hate. God's building something new in order to destroy hate. And to see what that hate is, all you have to do is understand a fraction of the trouble Paul the Apostle is stirring up in this passage. He's stirring the pot. He begins to stir the pot by addressing here in this section, by addressing Gentile converts to Christianity. So for Jewish people, hang on with me for a second, but for Jewish people, the world is neatly divided into two categories, two ethnic groups, Jews and everybody else. Literally the word Gentiles means the nations. There's us. And them, so it's nice and easy, super simple. And that second group, the Gentiles, that would be all of us, almost all of us, most likely today. But Paul addresses these Gentiles in the church in this way. He says, verse 11, therefore, remember, now he's speaking to the Gentiles here, the formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, You didn't have a choice over that and called uncircumcised, quote unquote, by those who call themselves the circumcision, quote unquote, which is done in the body by human hands. Pause. Paul kicks off this section in Ephesians by picking up two labels. The first is the label uncircumcised, a reference to the lack of bodily circumcision Gentile males received. The reason this is in quotation marks is because the word in Greek literally means a male anatomical part. And over time, the Jewish people began to use a male anatomical part as an insult to non-Jews. As in they would say, you all, you're a bunch of male body parts, fill in the blank. This was insulting, locker room type talk for sure. And it's in quotes to let you know Paul knows it's an insult and he does not approve of it. Now right here, sitting here today, you can think of any one ethnic group's slur of another. And that's what you've got Paul referring to right here. Like, oh, it just, it just got real, it did. Because Paul is saying to Christian Gentiles who were sitting in church, Next to Christian Jews, Paul said, remember how the people sitting next to you in your congregation used to insult you and slur you ethnically. You remember that? Yeah, that was a thing. Oh, but then Paul turns around, and one of the biggest surprises of the book, he insults and deconstructs the insult. He says, and you got to catch this, he says, circumcision, the very thing given by God to Abraham and then to Moses, To create the Jewish people, he says, listen, that was something only done by the hands of men. Now, commentators point out this was an intentional reference to numerous Old Testament passages, Psalms and prophets in particular, which describe how false gods were created. False gods, the Hebrew scriptures pointed out, were created by the hands of men oh wait, wait, hang on, Paul is now comparing circumcision to creating false gods. Like circumcision and creating false gods are just things done by the hands of men, like the thing God told his people to do in the Old Testament. Paul says it's fundamentally, functionally the same as what these Ephesians are doing down the road in their temple to Artemis. Like carving on a male body is the same as carving idols? Is that what he's saying? Yes. Paul's insulting the insult. He's shockingly denigrating central and centuries-old practice of the Jews by comparing it to idol worship. Why? Why would he do this? Where's this? Why is he bringing this up? He's not bringing it up to say you can't. Practice that or do that if you want to, but to make a larger point, which is this verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made two groups, the two groups one destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands. And regulations, Paul says, You two groups, Jews and Gentiles, you have had, he says, a barrier between you. And this barrier, you should know, has, was both a literal. And metaphorical wall in the Jewish building, in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, there was a wall four and a half feet high around the central part of that temple where Gentiles could not go. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded this. He said there were 13, not one, not two, 13 different stone inscriptions, signs put up all the way around the wall. And they read this, no foreigner is to enter within. Hmm. Paul says, remember, you were foreigners, right? Ooh, Foreign. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. This is like the Jewish equivalent of a trespassers will be shot on sight kind of a sign. Like, you seen that sign on people's doorstep with the 357 magnum on there? Like, we don't dial 911. But this is. This was a literal wall of threats that became a cultural and metaphorical wall of hatred. And it was summed up in what Paul names as God's law, God's commandments, God's regulations, one of which was circumcision. What? How did something good in one culture become a source of hatred and a basis for insulting every other people group? Let me ask you this. Here's my question. What does it mean to be on time? What does it mean to be on time? We're gonna explore this. Now, judging by when some of you came in today, you're still figuring that out. Okay, all right. Been waiting to get that one off my chest for a while now. Okay. When it's right there on the text, you gotta you gotta pick it up. All right. How about that? Let's flip the question. <laughs> what does it mean to be late? When do you have to say, I'm sorry? For being late, culturally speaking. Let me give you a few examples here. In the United States, culturally speaking, we feel it's roughly 5 to 10 minutes. Go ahead. I'm I'm waiting. I'm kidding. All right. All right. I'm kidding. Northern Europe. Northern Europe, it's about 10 to 15 minutes, a little longer. Latin America, it's about 30 to 45 minutes. And this is true on the island of Yap east of the Philist- uh, philistines philippines sorry philippines philippines it's 2 to 4 hours of delay <laughs> before you're considered late so what does it mean to be late well it depends a bit does it not on who you are and where you're from yeah. now what do you do with that many, many years, my wife, Carrie, and I did campus ministry, mostly down the street at the University of Texas. And one of the best parts of it was seeing not only our students come to faith in Christ and serve Jesus, but watch some of them get married. And then I got to be frequently the officiant at their weddings. And because of the multi-ethnic makeup of our ministry, there were frequently and happily many blessed interracial marriages. And I came to find out pretty quickly that lateness and promptness to the wedding ceremony can vary by culture sometimes. And at one of the first weddings I performed, true story, the bride was from one ethnic group. The groom was from another. The groom's family and friends were there on time and when the time on the invitation said. And when the clock struck six, not only was the bride not on the property, but her side of the room was practically empty. And it wasn't hard to figure out what all the murmuring And staring from one side toward the other was all about. Good thing we know how to show up on time, quickly turned into, well, it just goes to show you what's wrong with them. And of course, the other side felt that, began to remember back, hey, we can arrive when we want. The wedding starts when we all get here. Why can't they understand that? And that just goes to show you because they can't understand what's wrong with them. See, on one side, a good thing, promptness out of respect for others culturally became a dividing wall of hostility. On the other, a desire to move together, act together as a group became a dividing wall of hostility. The Jewish people had held up their good thing, their laws, their morality, their covenant with God and weaponized it. Against the Gentiles. The Gentiles said, all right, you Jews are gonna call us male body parts and a bunch of foreigners. How about this? We'll see your insult and raise you a national oppression. In Ephesus, around this time, the historian Philo, Greek historian, recorded there was a racist uprising against the Jews. Gentiles went through the streets, murdering them. Later, the Romans even destroyed the center of Jewish culture, their temple. Oh, but somehow, in the middle of all of this hate, both Jews and Gentiles said yes to following Jesus. They converted to the Christian faith who claimed that there was one Savior for all peoples, but, but they still carried their history and their backgrounds into church on Sundays. And they walked, walked past that Ephesian parking lot filled with cars. With bumper stickers advocating for groups that they felt may have hated them. And they saw other stickers promoting a political party they felt went against their cultural values. And they dropped off their kids in children's ministry. And they came and they sat down together to hear God's word after being advertised to all week. And emotionally pounded all week by different groups with different agendas, with different platforms designed to stir up fear and anger and hostility and hatred. And into all of this, Paul steps in and he says, no, God has come to destroy all the hate for he himself is our peace. Christ himself is our peace. Christ isn't your peace. He isn't my peace. He's not their peace. Christ is our peace for his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God. In other words, you've got to catch this. Paul is saying there is not just, oh, this is so blessed. There is not just one kind of peace but two kinds of peace, a double peace Christ purchased, a twin peace, peace first between us and God. And because of that, peace between us and the them, whoever the them is, whoever the us is, between me and you to create one, one new humanity, which now means this. If there isn't peace between me and you, Us and them. It means we have forgotten what it cost God to purchase our first peace between us and Him. What did it cost God? Paul tells you it happened, the peace was purchased through the cross through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. It caused God, his own son on the cross to purchase peace with us and them. And so if there is still, if there is still now hatred, enmity, hostility between us and them, it shows that somewhere, some way, somehow we have forgotten the cross. We've forgotten that I could not, we could not, no matter how many sacrifices we make to some God in some temple, whether it's the temple of another faith or the temples of academia, the temples of sports, the temples of business, the temples of education, the temples of moral performance. Oh, that we could not bring peace with God, through our own efforts and sacrifices, and the fact that humans still hate and we kill each other over these things, shows us the absolute depth of our need for an outside ourselves solution. If we were able to earn this peace with God, if our culture could produce peace with one another, we could claim superiority over everyone else. Oh, but the Christian story is that while all cultures have good things about them, our tendency is to take even the good things like the jewish people did and turn them against others making self salvation impossible and heaven's salvation non-negotiable if we take even the very best parts of ourselves and use them against one another well what does that tell us about the fundamental human condition it tells us we all need a savior Oh, but we forget this, do we not? We do. We forget that ethnic superiority is a form of idol worship because it worships a created thing, not the Creator. And it has produced, still produces, and will produce where it's practiced, hostility, enmity, and hatred. We forget all the things that anyone's culture globally has ever produced or built, which is made by the hands. Of men, we forget that we are not better than they. We forget this in almost every kind of way. Let me give you a few. For example, when it comes to our sexual ethics, we forget that God doesn't save us because we're straight, Nor does he condemn us because we're gay. In other words, our straightness doesn't automatically send us to heaven any more than someone's same sex attraction automatically sends them to hell or vice versa. No, what saves someone, what enables us to enter the kingdom of heaven is to use Paul's phrase, being. In Christ, in Christ, and what condemns us, anyone, is rejecting Christ and seeking something else to save them. To be in Christ means we have repented of our sin. He is first and foremost Lord, not our orientation or identity or our feelings. And so for anyone here, yeah, today at Mosaic, you're struggling with your straightness you're struggling with same-sex attraction, and you desire to follow Jesus, you want to live by the historic Christian sex ethic, which is and always has been a unidirectional affirmation of sexual expression being reserved for one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. We want to support and affirm everyone toward that goal while we work with you to work through whatever sticky and tricky place you find yourself in. Why? Because we are not better than they or not. To be in Christ, let me give you a few more, means if you're rich, you don't turn around and say, at least I've got a job, and at least I go to work. If you're poor, you don't say, at least I'm not arrogant and abuse other people on a planet like the rich people, because we are not better than they. You're starting to feel what's in the text, aren't you? I hope so. If you're educated, you don't say, well, at least I'm not dumb and foolish. Mm -hmm. And if you aren't educated, you don't say, well, at least I got my street smarts, you know. It means if you're a Republican, you don't say, well, at least I'm not a baby-killing Democrat. And if you're a Democrat, you don't turn around and say, well, at least I'm not a racist Republican. We are not better than they. And if you're a Christian, it means you don't say, at least I'm not like him or them or they. Isn't that what the Pharisee prayed in Luke 18? Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you. I thank you. I'm not like them. Oh, Jesus said that man did not go home justified. See, to be in Christ means we stop calling each other circumcised and uncircumcised. The labels stop and drop as the way by which we recognize each other first and foremost. And anything else when put first and not put down the line produces hostility. But church, we can do this because he Himself is our peace, our peace. God's building a new temple to destroy the hate. That's why he is building what he is building. Last question, how does God do all of this? How is God building this new holy temple in Austin? And the answer is by making you real uncomfortable. (laughs) Look here, we're gonna see the escalating use of three metaphors that tell us what this new identity in Christ is like. First, Paul says, God's made us, he says, like citizens of a new country. Look, he says, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, you're fellow citizens. He says, hey, church, we're now like countrymen, countrywomen together. Now that's pretty close, is it not? Closer than if we lived in different countries, because at least now we're like in the same land. Then he says, Oh, but if you think that's close, check out this next one. You're actually closer than countrymen and women are. You're members of a family. He says, You're also members of his household. Well, that's closer than countrymen and women, isn't it? Because if you live in the same country, you can still kind of hide from someone in another state. I mean, that's why so many of you moved here to Austin. To hide from your family back in California, right? But you did. (laughs) But if you're in the same family, wait a minute. That means we're not just in the same state. We're in the same house. There's not a lot of hiding when you're in the same house under the same roof. And then he says, oh, but if you think that's close... I've got something even more uncomfortable than that. God's actually joining us closer than countrymen and women, closer than members of a family. No, He says, we aren't just as close as members of a family. We're as close as the bricks and the stones of a house. He says that in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives. You know that phrase Jesus used, the kingdom is within you. Y'all heard this? Okay. I hope so. It's in the Bible after all. <laughs> I was I was talking with someone who recently used that phrase with me in conversation, and as he did, he he pointed to himself in his chest as if to say the kingdom of heaven is within me. And that's exactly what he meant. He went on to tell me this. He says, Jesus said the kingdom is within me. And he used it as a reason and a justification for going from church to church and never, ever actually developing meaningful relationships to be suspicious of all churches and Christians. There's only one problem with that. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say that, or meant. He actually said, the kingdom is within you all. You all, that's, it's a plural you in Greek. It's our dang English that gets in the way again. And Jesus did not look at Peter and said, yo, Pete, the kingdom, right there in you, buddy. I see it. No, he looked at his disciples and said, the kingdom is within you all. He never said or meant to say that as a lone Christian, you have his kingdom Inside you, he doesn't say that. You have his spirit inside you. You can't experience his presence by yourself, but his kingdom, his basileia, his reign is something that only comes within us. Jesus said the kingdom is within you all like when you're worshiping together in one another's lives together, sacrificing together, praying together, serving one another and others in my name. When you do that now, we become as close as bricks in a building And the purposes for which a holy temple is built can come to pass. God can draw near. We can overcome evil, the ancient hate in the world, and a whole new culture can be built. Now, when you hear all of that, and you consider, I'm stepping on some toes here, consider the average Christian in America is in church one to 1.5 times a month. Does that sound like what Jesus and Paul are getting at. Listen, you come once a month, maybe you give a little money, you attend a grow class once in a while, awesome. But does that sound like what God wants to build? Morgan, are you just trying to get me to attend more often? No! I'm actually trying to get you to do way more than that. (laughs) Than just being here week in and week out, I'm trying to get you to be involved to such a level that at some level, the structure comes to lean on you in a way. Like a structure leans on a brick, not like it leans on Jesus, our chief cornerstone, but more like a a stone in a building does. It carries at least some kind of weight that your financial involvement here maybe carries some weight. Your time commitment, your prayer commitment, serving somehow. I want you to know, hear me, you're missed when you're not here. This Mosaic community, it's not as strong or vibrant when you're gone. Listen, when we live like that now, the kingdom comes, the building's built, it rises. This gets lifted and the whole city can see it for miles. You say, Morgan, that feels real uncomfortable. And I would say, I told you, <laughs> I, I told you. But which, which, I hope you will come back after today. Actually, we have a guest next week, so if you don't like this, uh, you can come. He'll be real nice to you. But Which sounds, which sounds more like the Christian vision? The American way? Or Paul's way, Christ's way. Where where do I get the power for this? last thought is this. It's by seeing that there was someone who went first in all of this. Got far more than uncomfortable. He was actually murdered and killed for us. Jesus was the first stone, not just cut on, but cut off for all of us. But because he was cut on and cut off, he's now become our cornerstone. Enables us not to wobble to the left, wobble to the right, but he's created space for all of us to come and be part of his holy temple, rising to heaven, higher than Artemis, hmm? higher than the water line, higher and better than any temple or building that can be built, one that isn't gonna grow old, it's not gonna be demolished. Jesus died, not only so we could be saved, so that we could be joined to him and to one another because he himself is our peace. God's building something amazing in Austin. I think he is. And I'd like to think, at some level, he's using us to be a part of it. We take a moment and pray for you. Lord, I thank you for the power of your word. The points at which it comforts us. The points at which it distresses us. Even in the middle of that, you're our peace. Lord, we just acknowledge we don't understand it all. We don't get it all. And yet, we can lean into this aim, how you've aimed us toward one another because of you. Lord, give us grace now. Lord, to demonstrate to a watching world that you yourself are our peace. Through elections, through crises, through difficulties, through pain points, Lord, we hold fast the truth. You Yourself are our peace. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.